Okay, this Shabbos we have the pr- privilege of reading Parsha's Baloscha. One Parsha, it's nice for a change. And uh, we'll do what we always do, and that is uh, try to review the Parsha briefly, an overview, and then go back and analyze some of the Psukim. So Parsha's Baloscha begins actually in a funny place, uh, contrasting the end of last week's Parsha, which were the Nesim. All the princes came and offered their sacrifices. A Parsha, the end of uh, Nasa was once described, I heard a rabbi describe it as a Parsha only a Bar Mitzvah boy's mother could love. It's uh, the repetitiveness and redundancy and the whole uh, second half of Parsha's Nasa is the 12 uh, princes offer the exact same sacrifices. The Torah uses 90 psukim rather than just tell us here was the sacrifice, okay, times 12. It tells us 12 times the exact same sacrifice. Why that is, that's for last week's Parsha. So this week's Parsha, so this week's Parsha begins with the law of the mandate for the Kohanim to light the menorah in the, in the Mishkan. And Rashi tells us already why, uh, what's the contrast, why is there, this? why do we pick up this week with this when we left, left off last week with the Nesim? So Rashi tells us something which to me is astounding. That when Aaron HaKohen saw the Nesim offering their sacrifices, he said an expression that I'm used to hearing, maybe you remember hearing, but we would never imagine hearing from Aaron. He said, it's not fair to me. Not fair to me. I want to be the one to bring the sacrifice. How come they get to do it? I want to do it. It's not fair to me. Not fair to me? Aaron Cohen, brother of Moshe Rabbeinu, leader of the Jewish people, man who spoke to Paro. What do you mean it's not fair to me? Aaron had jealousy? And Hashem doesn't say to him, which I would have expected, a little patch. Not fair to you, Aaron? Grow up. Grow up, you have your shot, you have your chance. What are you talking about? Life's not about competition, life's not about limelight. You get your chance. What are, what are, you, what are you complaining about? Hashem doesn't say that to him. Hashem says, no problem, here's the menorah. And they got to only bring those sacrifices as a one-time thing. And you, your children, your progeny, your offspring will always light the menorah. The Ramban makes a reference here to the story of Hanukkah. The Ramban references what's uh, historically going to unfold from that perspective, from our perspective, it's history. But the menorah, so, uh, what does he mean? It's not fair to me. And rather than Hashem rebuke Aaron for saying it's not fair to me, he say, he almost validates it's not fair to you. Don't worry, I'll make it fair to you. I'm giving you something. It's Lodoros, it's for generations. You get to light the menorah. So I think the answer is, perhaps, that while jealousy and competitiveness are unhealthy attributes and qualities in many aspects of life, in spiritual ambition, they're very healthy. There are times we should embrace competitiveness. There are times that jealousy can be a conduit and a springboard for great personal growth. The Gemara has a, excuse me, an expression, Kina sofrem tar The jealousy of scholars increases and promotes wisdom. When there's pressure to publish, when there's pressure, pressure to have novel ideas, when there is pressure to be a great Talmud Chacham, it motivates and it drives people forward, as opposed to apathy and complacency and laziness. So competitiveness also has its room in Yiddishkeit if it's channeled towards personal growth. If the success of others inspires you to want to achieve yourself, then that could be something great. So if you want to succeed at the expense of others, that's unhealthy. If you want to replace or displace others, that's not a Jewish attribute. But to see someone else's success and opportunity in spirituality, in Ruchnius, in Avodas Hashem, and say, I would love a piece of that. I would love to know what that's like. I want to experience that myself. I crave and long that opportunity. That Hashem rewards. So Aaron saw the Nesim 
it wasn't. It's not fair to me. Like our kids say about their sibling, it's not fair to me. I want that. I, I mean, I learned early on, you know, that if I'm going to come home with candy from shul, I better come home with six of the exact same candies. <laughs> I can't come home with less than six, and I can't come home with one green and one red and one orange and one yet. I better come home with six of the exact same if I know it's good for me. <laughs> Otherwise, I want the red. It's not fair to me. I, I want to sit next to mommy. I want to. So. That's not what Aaron was saying. What Aaron was saying is, he witnessed and observed the Nesim's avoda, their she'ifa, their desire, their growth, and he wanted a piece of that in the world of ruchnis, in the world of spirituality. And to that, Hashem responds positively. You want that? Because you want that, I'll reward you. Here's the lighting of the menorah. So competitiveness and jealousy, not in the sense of wanting to replace what someone else has, but wanting to share what someone else has, that is healthy and to be uh, embraced in the world of Ruchnis. Okay, that's just a... We're not getting into this today. That's just an introduction because that's always bothered me about the opening of Parshas Baalotcha and that's my suggestion as to what's going on. In any case, we have the consecration of the Levium. Hashem tells Moshe to take the Levium and to purify them and to designate them and to anoint them. So it's their consecration. They're kind of uh, brought into, uh, into their, their role, their function. The Jewish people lean on them. You have the concept of smicha. Smicha is something we see on a korban. One leans on a korban. We have the concept of smicha when, when certain people were punished for violating God's word before they're stoned, before they're put to death. One puts their hands and leans on them. Here we have the idea of leaning on the levim. There's a lot of... Uh, deeper meaning to this but this is not what we're going to look at today but the whole the concept of the different places where we find that expression v'samchu smicha to lean to rest one's hands I think is uh, instructive it's interesting I spoke when my, my uh, when I received smicha from Yeshiva University my, my parents took us out for dinner the family and uh, I gave a little Dvar Torah and I spoke about what I thought that smicha meant in the context today our smicha is not a real smicha real smicha means ish mipish ad Moshe Rabbeinu person to person trace back to Moshe Rabbeinu it's an authentic unbroken chain Moshe received the Torah from Hashem and then he bestowed it Moshe Yeshua's real smicha was person after person getting it from Moshe that chain has been broken what we have today is uh, it's smichas more certification. We're certified to have uh, fulfilled certain areas, uh, disciplines of study, and to have been tested on them. So it's a certification as opposed to a real and authentic smicha, which uh, which is ishmipishiyat on Moshe Rabbeinu. So I think the notion of smicha today is also the sense that that the Jewish people are leaning on those who have smicha. There's a sense that when you lean on something, you're putting your weight on it. it you're being supported by that which you're leaning upon. So it's the notion of, of having a pillar of support and, and having the confidence to be able to lean on something. So here, they lean on the Levim. That's perhaps a foreboding of the role of the Levim, who are the, the, the Rambam describes, the the Levim are like the scholars, they're the community kolal. They are the ones who are designated as the Rebbeim, as the teachers, as the educators, to inspire the people, to uh, communicate Torah's ideals and values to them. So the Jewish, the people lean on the Levim, maybe is meant to be taken literally and figuratively. In other words, the literal experience or expression of placing one's hands and leaning on someone is a way of communicating to them, I will be leaning on you, relying on you, looking for support from you, and so on and so forth. Right? Then tells us that the Levim go through a period of apprenticeship, Miben Chamesh Ve'esrim Shonav Amala, from 25 years in age they join. There happens to be a, a discrepancy. We have a contradiction. Some here it says it's uh, 
25 years uh, elsewhere it says that the in the census that the Levim are only counted from the age of 30 so which is it? are they counted from the age of 30? or our Pasuk here in Baloscha the Levim are from the age of 25 so Rashi quotes that they have a 5 year period of apprenticeship to figure out whether they're cut out for this or not and Rashi teaches a very important principle if you've tried something for 5 years and not met success move on it's not for you so five years is the period to, to try. And if you've not met success, then you, uh, then you move on. Okay. We're moving on. In any case, you have uh, the, uh, the Pesach uh, offering in the wilderness, the, the Allah of Pesach Sheni here in Baloscha. It's a fascinating story, Pesach Sheni. And uh, I think the episode, the, to me, what you extract from Pesach Sheni for us is who initiates Pesach Sheni. Pesach Sheni is an absolute... Um, it totally deviates from the norm of what we would think. Could you imagine that one of us was exempt from having to keep Pesach, having to cook and clean and prepare, stay up late for two sadaram, eat and gorge, get stuffed with matzah? If we missed Pesach, the question to ask ourselves is, would we say afterwards, it's not fair to me? This, by the way, continues the theme that Aaron began the Parsha with. We would say is, oh, okay, <laughs> exempt, <laughs> got an exemption, cashing into my exemption from Pesach, no. I get a sabbatical from Pesach, uh-huh. one year I don't have to keep Pesach, no cooking, cleaning, preparing, no koshering, I'm not saying a word, I'm running with it to the bank, I am cashing in my exemption from Pesach. Here are these people, and who are these people, by the way? Why were they tame? Why were they impure and unable to participate in the Korban Pesach? They carried, the they carried the bones of Yosef, fulfilling the promise to Yosef out of Mitzrayim to take him to be buried in Israel. So, instead of saying, we're exempt, great, what do they say? Not fair to us, we won. What a powerful lesson of Pesach Sheni, that they initiate this halacha, they introduce this halacha, they are a model, like Aaron at the beginning of the parsha of spiritual yearning, of spiritual jealousy, of spiritual competitiveness, of spiritual ambition, something which unfortunately is very lost in our day. Okay. And then we have the signs of the Jewish people's travels, uh, the cloud of glory and the fire, the protection, the trumpets which would herald their traveling, breaking up the camp. Moshe invites his father-in-law, another deviation from the norm here, Moshe invites his father-in-law, please stay, don't go home, move in with us, live with us. Does Yisrael stay or does he go? Goes. No. He goes. What's Yisrael's ultimate destiny? Does he join the Jewish people or not? We don't know. We spoke about that last year, I believe. Yeah. And why it's not important. Why the Torah doesn't feel a need to inform us Yisrael's ultimate where he, uh, destination. What's more important is Yisrael's process than his destination, his journey than his destination. Okay. Why do they choose to call him his Marashi tells us he has many names. Yeah. Why here specifically Hovev? I don't know. The journey is the destination. The journey is the destination, exactly. Okay, so we have the Jewish people's first journey, and that's uh, what we're going to pick up today. Pasuk Lamed Gimel, Perak Yud, page 786 in the Stone Chumash. So it says the Jewish people travel three days. They travel three days. The Aron, the Ark, went before them three days distance to search out where they're going to rest. The cloud travels with them. This was their first, <coughs> excuse me, terrible failure. Because Rashi tells us, this journey that they, they traveled, they ran away. They ran from Harsinai. Like children running from school, they were eager to get away. They fled rather than embrace the moment and live in the moment. 
and savor the moment, they ran from the moment. So the Torah now has its famous upside down nuns, inverted nuns, a section we recite when we take the Torah out. When the Aaron would travel, Moshe would say, Kuma Hashem, Arise Hashem, scatter the enemies, our enemies, your enemies. Let those who hate you run from you, calling upon Hashem to intimidate our enemies. And when the Aaron rested, Shuva Hashem, Rivavos Alpha Yisrael. We would say, reside tranquilly, Hashem, among the myriad thousands of Israel. That Hashem should rest among the great multitudes of the Jewish people. And that brings us up to Parakid Aleph, Pasuk Aleph, which is our, uh, what I want to get into the text that we're going to analyze and take a look at this morning. Sorry, which Pasuk? Parakid Aleph, Pasuk Aleph. Chapter 11, verse 1. Says the Hela Gatayra, Vahi Hashem, and the people were. Translate the word. Complaining? No, it says took. Took to seek it. Acting like complainers. Okay, we'll see in a moment. In the ears of Hashem. Hashem heard. He heard their message. He got angry. Vativar bam eish Hashem. Vatochal mitzay hamachana. Fire of Hashem burned against them and consumed the edge of the camp. Let's read a little further, then we'll come back. So what happens? They're being consumed there by this fire. So the people cry out. Interestingly, to whom do they cry out? Moshe. Not to Hashem. They cry out to Moshe. And Moshe doesn't equivocate. He doesn't waver. He's called upon. He davens to Hashem. And is Moshe successful? Absolutely. The fire settles down. Extinguishes. And they named the place Tav'era for the fire of Hashem had burned against them. Tav'era, the root is to fire, to burn. And because the fire had consumed and burnt them there, that's uh, why the place is named thus. Okay. So what's going on here? Look at Rashi. It says, and the nation were complainers. Rashi notes, whenever the Torah uses the term ha'am, the nation, it means that there's something negative about them. So Rashi references a few places. He contrasts. When the Jewish people behave well, God calls them Ami, my people. When they're not behaving well, He calls them... Uh-huh. Right? Like what, it, it, that would have, never would happen to me. But if one of my daughters were misbehaving, I would say, Yocheved, one of your daughters needs you. <laughs> and when my daughter is behaving beautifully, my daughter, such nachas. So Hashem feels the same way. When we're behaving properly, Ami, my nation... And when we're misbehaving, Ha'am! Oh, that, that nation. I don't know who they belong to. That nation, says Rashi. The people are misbehaving. Now the real question is, what does this term misonanim mean? What does it mean? It's fascinating. The Mepharshim here deliberate back and forth. They debate. What exactly does this term mean? What is it, refer- what is it referring to? What? Well, what's the root of the word and what does it mean? 
So, uh, who should we start with? Um, let's start with. Let's start with Rashi. Misonunim. Ain misonunim elolashon alila. Mevakshim alila heach lifrosh meacharei hamakom. The word misonunim means, says Rashi, alila. What is alila? A pretext. The people sought a pretext. We find this in reference to Shimshon Samson, the mighty judge of the Jewish people in the book of Shoftim, the book of Judges. It says, the same root of the word. He is seeking a pretext. To seek a pretext. Right there, Shimshon is trying to pursue a plishti woman and is talking to his parents. And it says, Shimshon is looking for a pretext. So here Rashi says, when the Jewish people, when the, the Am were misonanim, it means that they were seeking a pretext. Thank you very much. They were seeking a pretext to abandon Hashem or to challenge Hashem or to complain to Hashem. It means that the complaint didn't arise organically. The complaint didn't arise because there was something legitimate that bothered them, that troubled them, and that they complained about it. Rather, they wanted to complain, and they sought a pretext to complain. You understand? So Rashi understands the word misonanim as alila. They sought a pretext to be able to complain. Is that something that they turned it off? Or they they turned it off? I don't think so. So that's, that's Rashi's understanding. Misodanim means a pretext to complain. That's almost like... There we are. There we are. That's how Rashi understands. Okay. It's almost like in the army, if you're drafted into the army, you have a pretext all the time to complain. Right. You look, exactly. Okay. That's how Rashi understands. The, the Ramban first quotes to Ibn Ezra. Omar Rabbi Avram, who's referring to the Rabbi Avram, Ibn Ezra. Nigzeras avon... He quotes a pasuk from Yirmiyahu where we see the same verb being used. Right? So it's the same root as Kimis Onanim. And the Ibn Ezra says it means iniquity. Yirmiyahu is chastising the people. Yerushalayim, cleanse yourself of your iniquitous thoughts. Machshavos Onach. Your iniquitous thoughts. Avon. Avon. Usually think of Avon with an ayin as iniquity, as a sin. No, say Avon. But no, say Avon. The Ramban says here that, uh, I'm sorry, Avram Ibn Ezra, first he's quoted the Ramban, that here it means their sin. Therefore the Ibn Ezra translates as, the people were sinners. So Rashi translates as, the people were those who sought a pretext. They wanted to complain, and they looked for a pretext to complain. That's Rashi. Ibn Ezra says, no, that's not what it means. It means the people were sinners. They were lowlives. They were sinners. They spoke sinful words to challenge God, to complain to God, to rebel against God is sinful. That's what it means. Misonim is sinful. Says the Ramban, says Nachmanides, it's not correct. If they did a sin, why did the text tell us what they did wrong? Torah elsewhere tells us exactly what the people did wrong. If they're here, the Torah means to tell us they sinned. So continue and describe what was their sin? What did they do wrong? 
says the Ramban, let me tell you the correct. When they distance themselves, when they had traveled, they have now journeyed from Harsinai. They got the Torah their other way. So Harsinai was close to residential, settled area, civilization. They travel three days, they're in the heart of the desert. What's the desert like? They're in the great desert. They're on their first travel, their first journey into the barren, desolate, dry desert. They look around, they say to themselves, What are we, crazy? What are we going to do? How will we sustain ourselves? They didn't have bottled water and boxed lunches. We're not talking about a journey today. They're in the desert with no resources to sustain themselves. What will we eat? What will we drink? How long can we possibly absorb this suffering? When will we leave? So the Ramban quotes a Pasuk from Eicha and then from Brishis where he says a third meaning of the same root of the same Shorash from Misonanim. Rashi said the root of Misonanim was pretext. Pretext. Quoting a Pasuk from Shimshon. Soana, Misonanim, seeking a pretext. That's how Rashi understood. The Ibn Ezra quoted a Pasuk from Yirmiyahu. Machshavosonach, meaning your iniquitous thoughts. Misonanim means sinners. The Ramban quotes a Pasuk from Eicha. It means suffering. Miss Onan and the people were struggling. They were suffering. The people, what led to their mistake was they were suffering. They looked around the desert and they said, How possibly can we survive this? They were already struggling. And that's the root of the word. Now the Ramban says, picks up on a very interesting extra letter. The verse should have said the people were misonanim. What is the word ki misonanim? The chaf means like. As if. They spoke about the bitterness of their soul, like describing the pain that they were in. They were kim misonanim. They were as if in pain. Meaning, they had just entered the desert. They had yet to suffer. They're not three weeks into the right, desert, right. suffering, parched, dehydrated, starving, exhausted. They just came into it. They were kim misonanim. They anticipated and projected onto themselves the struggles of the desert and complained as if they were already in that pain. And this was considered negative in the eyes of God. They should have been joyous. They should have been excited. God was good to them. He gave them the mud, the cloud of glory, and the fire. God was taking care of them. Yeah. And rather than embrace the good that God bestowed upon them, 
with a sense of confidence that it would carry them through the desert despite its harsh conditions. Instead, they allowed the harsh conditions to blur everything that they had in their life and they kibbisonen and they transformed themselves. They already lived with a suffering they had not yet even experienced. They complained as if they were struggling so when they weren't even there. So you get in the car with your kids for a three-hour car ride have to go somewhere and you haven't even pulled out of the driveway and they say, I'm so tired, I'm so thirsty, I'm so bored, and are we there yet? This car ride is impossible. You say, I haven't even put the car in reverse yet. Yeah. I just turned the engine on. But they anticipate it's a three, it's a five, it's an eight-hour car ride, I'm going to be exhausted, I'm going to be thirsty, I'm going to be bored. See, so say, what, what are you complaining about? Am I there yet? Am I there yet? That's the famous one. So Jewish people enter the desert, they say, are we there yet? We're exhausted, we're tired. God says, are you kidding me? That's misonidim. That's misonidim. So fascinating, we have three different interpretations here. Rashi, misonidim, quotes from, from uh, Shimshon and Shoftim, from one root means, pretext. The Ibn Ezra says, sinfuls, sinners, iniquitous. The Ramban says, suffering. They made themselves as if they were suffering when they were not yet suffering. Right? Very interesting. Yeah. Very interesting. Now, let's keep going. The fire came down. Actually, let's go back one second. Let's look at the Kliyakar. Kliyakar has another very interesting interpretation here. <coughs> Says the Kliyakar. Lo batzinu mefurash b'mikra mahu aninu zeh v'lo ba'a kasav listom el alafarish Kliakar also wonders. Torah doesn't delineate exactly what they did wrong here. It says the people complained or were sinful or created a pretext. God heard, became angry. A fire consumed them. They turned to Moshe. Moshe davened for them. God extinguish the fire it doesn't say ever what, what they complained about what did they complain about says the Kliakar thank you you're a lifesaver so so um, Kliakar says we're about to read two complaints that they have in succession it's really one complaint phrased as one complaint but it's two one the people say oh, the fish in Egypt that was to die for it was free, delicious, delicacy. How we long for it. How we long for the fish in Egypt. The second, says the Kuyakar, is that it says they turned to their families and they cried. We'll see this in a moment. Rashi already quotes what it meant was they bemoaned the prohibition of Arias, the forbidden illicit relations within one's own family. The Jewish people mourned that they were lost to those relationships. Before our Sinai, these were permissible relationships. After our Sinai, they're illicit, forbidden relationships. And the people mourned that lack of access. So he says, that's what's going on here. He says, this sin is what is going on with the upside down, backward nuns that you have setting off this section. Why do we have the nuns? Rashi says, we learned this last year, because... The Jewish people make three horrible mistakes in a row. 
And in order to break them up, because if we have this pattern of being so uh, sinful, God can't tolerate such a thing. So in order to break them up, we section off this section to be a hefsek between the paranios. We have these nuns, which are brackets. We create a parenthesis because we have to section them off. Kliyaka says that's not what's going on. He says, it's wondrous in the eyes of many, and even in my eyes I wonder. What does it mean when Chazal and Shagimar Shabbos tell us that Moshe heard the people crying with their families? It means they're crying about their families. That they can no longer marry or sleep with their own family members. If when the law was given at Harsinai, they were quiet and they didn't object then, why now all of a sudden? Why now? Dafka now, <coughs> three days into their journey in the desert, are the people saying, We've lost access to marrying our family. Why now? And how does that connect with their crying about the fish and wanting meat? What does that have to do with family relations? He said our rabbis struggled to integrate these two explanations. Were they crying about the fish? Were they crying about forbidden family relations? What does one thing have to do with the other? Why are they crying now? Why did they cry earlier? What's going on? Says the Kliyakar. You know what this section is about? Jewish people are about to enter the desert. They've successfully been extracted from Egypt. They've been freed and liberated from bondage. They're entering the desert. And you know what God's message to them was? What's critically important for them? Multiply. Multiply. Have children. Have lots of children. Why is it the Jewish people have lots of children? Very observant people have many children. Because it's, it's the it's this successful continuity of the Jewish people. America's in trouble. The world is in trouble. When you have 1.3 kids for a family, you know, population studies, you got problems. If you want to thrive as a nation, you want to grow, you have to multiply. So what's the reference? God was saying, multiply like fish. Don't we say that on Rosh Hashanah? The letter Nun is the symbol of fish. Fish is symbolized by the letter Nun. And therefore, the brackets of the nun. What does it say? When the Aaron rested, Uvenucha Yomar, 
Shuvah Hashem, God should settle. When will God join the Jewish people? Rivavos Alpha Yisrael. When they are myriads, thousands of Jews. Meaning, multiply, build God a nation, and Shuva Hashem, Hashem comes and dwells among you. So when they were originally given the prohibition of illicit relations with their own family, they said, what do we care? So there are fewer women to promulgate with? Okay. We have a narrower selection, a pool of whom we can marry, have children? Alright. But now that God says to them, your purpose, your mandate, go out and multiply, have children, Create. Conceive. Now they say, but, but our, our pool is so narrow. You've taken away some of the women with whom we could have had children. And that's why they complained. If you want us to multiply like fish, then give us all the women. We could have ensured that God will be found among us. Shuva Hashem. That God will dwell among us because we'll create myriads of thousands of Jews. Rivos Alpha Yisrael. But now that you're eliminating some of our potential incubators, some of our potential. Uh, Baby machines. Now, you've turned us into the opposite of fish. And that's the inverted nun. Because you've prevented us from our ability to... And this is the explanation of the parsha. We are, now the Kliyakar gives us a fourth explanation of what misonanim means. What is an onen? An onen is someone who has lost a loved one, one of the seven immediate relatives. In between the moment of death, and burial. And they have a unique status. They are not only exempt, are they exempt or are they forbidden from the performance of mitzvahs? We paskin, they are forbidden. Unfortunately, some know this all too well, too recently. There is a prohibition to do mitzvahs. Why that is, Tosos quotes an opinion there already. What? No, you can't violate lavim. You can't eat a cheeseburger. <laughs> but you're not, you don't fulfill positive mitzvahs. No talos, no tefillin, no brachas, and so on. But you can't violate a negative commandment when you're an onin. One of the things an onin is not allowed to do is tashma shemita, sexual relations. They're forbidden. They have to abstain. Says the kliakar, that's what the word means. The people said, You're restricting us who we can sleep with. We are like onanim. We are like those who are forbidden in Tashmishamita. Moshe didn't understand what they were getting at, but Hashem understood what was in their hearts. It was evil where? In the ears of Hashem. 
As if to say, Hashem understood what they were really saying between the lines. What is the greatest desire that man has? Freud had this right. The libido, the sexual urge, is the strongest desire. It leads many astray. It leads... It is what bonds people together and it is what can destroy relationships. And it perverts thinking and judgment. It is described as fire. Sexual desire, romantic urge is, is passion, is fire. Says the Kliyakar, that which fire consumed the people is for the sexual fire that consumed them. They were so driven by the sexual urge and the announcement or the realization that they had a limited pool of people with whom it was permissible to have relations was so devastating to them that it had extinguished their fire, their urge. That's what it means. God consumed them with fire. Very interesting, Kliyaka, right? So the obligation to to, uh, multiply the nun is the symbol of the fish. The backwards nun is their inability to multiply like fish. Their complaint about fish corresponds with the complaint. Right in Egypt, we had fish, mm-hmm. meaning in Egypt we slept with whomever we wanted, and now you got rules for whom we could sleep with. Now you're limiting our party life. You've you've it's inverted nuns. You've taken away our free fish. Taking away our ability to sleep with whoever we want and to multiply, and therefore the people were kimis onanim. So you're turning us into like an onain who's forbidden in Tashma Shemitah. So we have a fourth explanation of what onan, kimis onanim is. Does it come from pretext, like Shimshon? Does it come from sinner or iniquity, like the Ibn Ezra Yirmiyahu? Does it come from like the Ramban and Eicha? Someone who is suffering and struggling? Or does it come from the word onain? Like somebody who is mourning? That is the kli yakar. Okay? It could also be because they were starting to go into the desert and they came from Egypt, which is surrounded by water, in, uh, relatively speaking, so therefore it's always uh, availability. Uh, it could be. We'll see. We'll see in a moment. Isn't this the, the beginning of monogamy without even going into any sort of negative, you know, in other yeah, words, essentially. they could be upset because they had to be monogamous from now on? Yeah, but it's not just monogamy. First of all, they didn't have to be monogamous. They were allowed to have multiple wives, men. They still were? Women, sure. It wasn't until uh, Rabbeinu Gershom it wasn't until the 11th century. I thought it was once they got to Israel, no? No, 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 it wasn't until the 11th century. Okay, I thought that. Okay. Sure, they had multiple wives all through Tanakh. All through the time the time of the Mishnah of the Gemara. It wasn't until Rabbeinu Gershom, Rashi's teacher. Mora Gola. Okay, continuing. In the 11th century, earlier. Svarim did not accept and embrace it. Sfardim <laughs> continued to have polygamy yeah. until the founding of the state of Israel. Because the found, and they were grandfathered, those who moved to Israel from Sephardic countries who had multiple wives, Rabbi Jacob's great uncle, I think, had many wives, um, they were grandfathered in, but Israeli law forbids, mandates, prohibits uh, polygamy. Other yeah. countries prior to the 1100s had forbidden uh, various Oh, yeah. family relations yeah no the Torah so that's, it's not it's not monogamy it was family illicit family relations family. that were that were prohibited okay let's keep going that that so far all we saw was 
four definitions of misonanim. Bikzei hamachana, the fire consumed them. It says on the edge of the camp, the end of pasuk aleph. Rashi says bikzei hamachana b'muktsin shebahem l'shiflus elo eruv rav. Kitzei can mean those who live on the edge. Who are the extremists? Those who live on the edge. Says Rashi, this is a reference to the eruv rav. I, I have to designate some time to study the eruv rav. I've never fully understood who are the eruv rav. So we know that they are Egyptians that latched onto the Jewish people and left with them. Some say there's Midrashim that reference they are the aristocracy. They were actually the wealthy, the, the intellectuals of Egypt. Others say that they weren't. They were the low lives of Egypt. Um, did they convert? Did they convert? Did they not convert? What was their status? Some says they converted. They joined the Jewish people and they converted, but they became a thorn in, their, in the Jewish people's sides. And others say they never converted. It's, a, it's unclear to me. I, like I said, I have to spend some time on this because if they converted, they were full-fledged Jews. Why do we call them the Erev Rav? You're not supposed to remind the convert that they're different. They, they're, they're full-fledged Jews. And if they didn't convert, why did we tolerate their continuing to travel with us? The moment they became a thorn in our sides by complaining and being negative and toxic, why did we cut them loose? So I think it takes a little bit more study. But Rashi is telling us that the fire consumed in particular the Erev Rav. This this moral conflict was led or charged greatest by those who were on the fringe. That's Bikzei Hamachana literally translates to those on the fringe of the camp. So Rashi's first explanation is though who are the ones on the fringe of the camp? The Erev Rav, the mixed multitudes who had latched onto the people. In the Israeli army today, what's a katzin? Captain. An officer, a captain, a leader. Uvigdolam. Mm-hmm. The alternative explanation is who were most affected by this Farashi? The leaders. The leaders themselves were the ones who were complaining and to whom God directs His wrath in consuming. By Moshe, they turned to Moshe. Why do they turn to Moshe? Says Rashi. It's like a king who got angry at his son, the prince. The prince is fearful that he can't appease his father. He goes to his father's best friend and he says, please, go advocate on my behalf. So the people here too, they feel God's wrath, they suffer his wrath, they turn to God's best friend, so to say, and they ask of him, please go advocate on our behalf. Says the Kliakar, Why did they go to Moshe, not to Hashem directly? Why didn't they go to Hashem? Because they understood that Moshe didn't understand what happened. All of a sudden the fire comes down and starts to burn and the camp consumed them. It was never explicit what they did wrong, that they did something wrong, that this was a punishment. So since that was concealed from Moshe, they thought Moshe would think maybe this was a natural catastrophe. There was a uh, forest fire not a forest fire in the desert but this is a natural a supernatural catastrophe and, but not necessarily punishment so they go to Moshe thinking that he will be their most loyal advocate because they'll see them as innocent Sometimes a fire can happen because the parcel of land is particularly predisposed to fire. 
weather conditions, uh, whatever the case may be. So Moshe thought that this was not a fire that came as a result of their sins. This was a fire as a result of the condition. the conditions. So he davens for them. And that's why it says the Kliyakar, he names the place, this innocent, ambiguous name, Tav'era, a place of fire. Because he thought that there was a natural fire. People suffered from it. He davened for them. The suffering was relieved. And he named the place Tav'era. That's what's going on here. Fine. Let's go weiter. Let's go a little bit further. Should we go a little bit further? We're not going to go further. We're going to stop here. Um, but let me, let me add one more thing. The story now goes on. Ha'asaf Suf. The Asaf Suf. Um, the crowd. Yeah, the, the multitudes, the crowd. Hisavu Tava. They felt a great desire. And they cry. Who's going to feed us meat? And what happened to the fish? And it was for free. And I wanted to spend time, but we'll do it next year. What does it mean the fish were for free? What were exactly they were complaining about? We saw the Klayaka already. But others, the Ibn Ezra says, free means literally free. The Nile was overflowing with fish. Anyone can have fish. Fish was like grass growing out of the ground. They had plenty of fish. Now in the desert, they don't have fish. Rashi says, no, it's meant to be taken figuratively. What they meant was it was free meant it was free of any burden or obligation to us. Now we owe you mitzvahs, God. Now you give us the money, you feed us and nourish us in exchange for our obedience. Now it's kind of peculiar because they had an obedience in Egypt too. They were slaves. But they're complaining about their spiritual obedience now. The very identity, the very core. They said, we used to get fish for free. Now our sustenance and nourishment costs us, you have to sell our soul to you, God, literally. By, by being obedient in Torah and mitzvahs. So they continue to complain, our soul is dry, and then the Torah then testifies, what do you mean your soul is dry? You had the mud. Torah testifies how great the mud was. Moshe hears all of this, and Moshe goes crazy. God, what are you doing this to me for? Why would you choose me? I can't handle this alone. Eichuchal, I, I can't do this. And if you're going to make me, just kill me. Take me now. Just kill me now. So what's really going on here? About their complaint... And where did their complaint come from? What does it mean their soul is dry? Why does Moshe react or overreact in the way that he does? God answers by giving him a Sanhedrin to try to deflect by creating a more leadership. It deflects the responsibility from solely being a Moshe. So much to learn from that. So much to learn from all of this. So I want to just end with one last insight into this term misonanim, a fifth insight. Which maybe explains the harsh reaction of Moshe and what the people meant in terms of the mud. Misonanim is what form of the verb? Reflexive. It's hitpa'el. It's reflexive. Normally we would have pl, which is the action form of the verb. Here the Torah uses hispa'el, which is reflexive form, something you do to yourself. So now translate the word misonanim in the reflexive sense. It means they turned themselves into complainers. You see, there's a world of difference between a generally happy-go-lucky, grateful, upbeat person who has a legitimate complaint on the one hand and a complainer on the other. Right? All of us can tolerate good, thoughtful, sensitive, insightful, happy, positive people who have a legitimate complaint. We can tolerate it. We can hear it. We can work on it. But when someone is a complainer... It's part of their identity. It's part of who they are. All they do is complain. They're not happy unless they're unhappy. They're, they're constantly complaining. In my own rabbit, this was a major shift that I took. 
when I was a younger rabbi, I still consider myself a younger <laughs> rabbi, but when I was a younger rabbi, when I first started out in the rabbinate, people would come to me and complain, because I don't know if you know, rabbis have big targets on their chests and their foreheads. So people would come and complain about everything in the world under the sun. So, you know, some people who would perpetually complain, I would perpetually try to make them happy. And I would be terribly upset and bothered and think about it all the time and it would weigh on me why are they unhappy and how can I make them better and, and I gotta turn them around until it dawned on me they're just not happy unless they're unhappy right. <laughs> they're not it's, it's as if what Rashi was saying about the pretext they're only unhappy complaining and their life is seeking opportunities to complain as a pretext to meet their need to be negative to meet the need to be unhappy so those types of people the Torah the Torah has very little tolerance for by the way parenthetically neither do I if a person has a legitimate complaint it's valid legitimate let's confront it let's fix it let's work on it let's listen to it let's welcome it but to be a complainer that's not okay that's not okay and so perhaps what's going on in this section is they were kimisoninim. They weren't happy people with a complaint. But Moshe understood that they transformed themselves into a group of complainers. That says, Moshe, would you do this to me? I can't lead this people. I can't tolerate this people. I can't carry this burden. Kill me now. I can tolerate great people who have legitimate complaints. I can't tolerate complainers. And maybe that explains Moshe's reaction. And maybe that explains... This the mud was a pretext. Fish is a pretext. The ain kol. Our soul is dried out. Maybe it means our soul is dried out from being complainers. <coughs> it dries one out. So it's a fourth, fourth interpretation of what this term misoninim means, or another insight into it. That because it's the reflexive form of the verb, it wasn't just that the people registered a legitimate complaint, but they had transformed themselves into complainers. And that is intolerable. That Moshe reacted so harshly to and tried to transform them and influence them back. Alright, so we'll pick up from where we left off uh, Mir Sashem next year.